Welcome, friends, to another amazing episode of the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. If you've been listening to this podcast for the last many months, many episodes, you know that this is a podcast where we discuss all aspects of Jewish life. We've been discussing spirituality and purpose, mindfulness and consciousness, music and modesty and marriage, parenting, and even Netflix, right? We, we, we'll discuss anything, anything that helps us live a more empowered Jewish life. Um, but really, it, it, one of the most important aspects of life is our business, how we support ourselves, our quest to make money in order to support ourselves and hopefully have just a little left over for some of the luxuries of our life that we'd like to have. So what does Jewish wisdom teach us about money and about our business and about becoming prosperous? Is there a Torah approach to making more money? So in this podcast, I have a conversation with the guy who wrote the book on that topic. Now, by that, I don't mean God. A different book on that topic. My guest is Michael Eisenberg, who is widely considered Israel's top venture capitalist. And he is about to release a new book in August called The Tree of Life and Prosperity. So Michael Eisenberg is the co-founder and general partner at Aleph, an early stage venture capital fund with over $500 million under management. Michael's been a venture capitalist for 25 years. Aleph focuses on partnering with great Israeli entrepreneurs to build large, meaningful companies and impactful global brands. Since its founding in 2013, Aleph has invested in more than 40 companies, and we'll actually discuss some of that uh, in our episode today. Since 2006, Michael has been writing the blog Six Kids and a Full-Time Job. He actually has eight kids, as we're going to discuss also on the podcast, but I guess when he started the blog, he only had six. So it just comes to teach you folks, if you're starting a blog and you plan on having more kids, then uh, you might want to take that into consideration. But the blog is on topics ranging from politics to technology, Judaism, macroeconomics, Michael's also published five books in Hebrew, The Vanishing Jew, Ben Baruch, The Tree of Life and Prosperity, which is the one that he's releasing in English this August, Everyone Can Be Moses, and Roaring Tribe. He lectures frequently on venture capital, Israel, and entrepreneurship. You're going to love this conversation. We cover a lot of really, really interesting topics, and I know you're going to enjoy. So without further ado, here we go, Michael Eisenberg. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. Okay, so one more quick note before we begin today's conversation. I want to thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. Over the course of the last several episodes, we've seen a real climb in people listening, and I'm really, really excited about it, and I'm so grateful to all of you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, send me a message on any of the social medias, Shlomo Buxbaum on Facebook or on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you're enjoying and what you'd like to hear more of. Also, if you're on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe 
subscribe and give it a rating and share it with others because we'd love to get these conversations out to more people. I would really, really appreciate that. Lastly, I just wrote a book and it's called The Four Elements of an Empowered Life. And it is available on Amazon or at the publisher site, Mosaica Press. And I encourage you to check it out because it's a really great mix of ancient Jewish wisdom, mysticism, some Kabbalah, but also very practical, modern advice from all of the, the top thought leaders today. So I really think you'll enjoy it. And I encourage you to check it out, pick up a copy. It's available wherever Jewish books are sold. So yeah, check it out. The Four Elements of an Empowered Life. And without further ado, on with the show. Okay, it is a great pleasure to welcome Michael Eisenberg to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Robert Roxman. Good to be here. I'm so excited to dig in a little bit to you and your life. Um, seeing everything that you do, you know, we call this the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. And I think that you really think about empowered Jew living. All of those things, I think, really apply to you. You're, you're a, a, a venture capitalist, an angel investor. You have a big, beautiful, gorgeous family. We'll hear about that a little bit. You're living in Israel. You, you study Torah. You're writing books. It's like, I mean, tr truly empowered. So could you just introduce the listeners to yourself, your story, and maybe give us a little bit about your background to help us understand kind of who you are? Sure. Thank you for the opportunity. As you hear from my accent, I was not born in Israel. Uh, I grew up in, in New York on the west side of Manhattan. Uh, my family. Been I'm from Brooklyn, by the way. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> Close <laughs> enough. <laughs> the, uh, my family been on the west side of Manhattan for generations. My family, uh, thank God, was in America before World War II uh, and in many cases before World War I. Um, and I grew up an Orthodox Jewish life on the west side of Manhattan and uh, in a Zionist family. Uh, at the same time, after my freshman year of college, I came to Israel to study in the yeshiva. And in my second year there, which was right after the Gulf War of 1991, the first Gulf War, I had what was you know, uh, an inspiring experience, for lack of a better term. I interacted with the head of the yeshiva there, who I wasn't close with, in Rabbi Amital. And I, and I asked him a question that I thought was a question in Jewish law. If I made Aliyah, the hypothetical, uh, if I moved to Israel, where should I live? Uh, would it matter if I lived in a populated place or an unpopulated place? And he looked at me and said, no, that's nonsense. Complete and total nonsense. What you need to do is, is make it, make Aliyah, move to Israel and open a factory that'll employ 10,000 people to earn an honest and decent living. Wow. And basically on the spot, I decided to make Aliyah and move to Israel and to try to create 10,000 jobs. And, and that's really kind of been a, a life goal of mine is to create as many jobs as possible for people to earn an honest and, and, and decent living. And so uh, we were blessed. I finished college in the U.S. I went back to finish college in the U.S. in a couple of years. And, and then uh, my, my bride of six or eight weeks and I uh, picked up and moved to Israel in August 1993. And we've been here since. Wow. I, I wonder, did you, do you think your rabbi, did, you, did he see something in you? Like he saw like this business spark in, or, or what, do you think that was a generic answer <laughs> that he gave to everybody? I, I don't know what it was. I can tell you this. He didn't know me well then, that's for sure. So I would assume it's, it's somewhat of a generic answer, but, but it was a challenge. By the way, the epilogue to the story is that they made like an 80th birthday event for him uh, in the convention center in Jerusalem. And they, 
and I had never talked about the story, basically. It was kind of a big motivator for me. I never talked about it, but they, they had me on stage there and I really didn't want to get on. And I get on stage and he's got like this Cheshire smile on his face. And I said, they say, tell the story. I tell the story. And he turns to me and says, well, how many people are you employ now? I said, I'm not sure I'm at 10,000 yet. He said, okay, then get off the stage and get back to work. Exactly. Keep going. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, he and I became very close uh, uh, thereafter. And, uh, and I've been in venture capital basically ever since. I spent a year and a half in political consulting when I moved to Israel. And I spent the last 25 years of, of my uh, professional career investing in startups in Israel. When you started investing, was the whole startup Israel, that whole culture, was that already big? No, no. In fact, you know, I, I consider myself uh, super blessed to have uh, turned up in Israel when I did. So I, I moved to Israel in 1993. The beginnings of the venture capital and startup world in Israel is the end of 92, the beginning of 93. And I got into the business kind of at the end of 94 um, in, in a series of strange events. But uh, the thing, one thing I had that nobody else here had at the time, again, early days of venture capital was I knew something about what the internet was in nine, the end of 94, beginning of 95. And for those who remember the first browser, the Netscape browser comes out in 1994. And so because of that, I, I got interested in the internet early. I knew what it was from my time in college and back in the US, whereas most of the venture capitalists initial, and I wasn't really one, I was kind of a fraud. That's a bad term. I was kind of a fake it till you make it venture capitalist uh, at that point, but nobody knew anything about the internet. So I backed a bunch of Israel's early internet companies before the internet was kind of a thing mm -hmm. uh, beginning in early 95. Wow. So did you, I'm, I'm just wondering, being an American, you're, you're coming to Israel, right? You have some sort of insight into the internet, but I'm sure over there it's, it's probably difficult just breaking into the culture. It's a different attitude. Like, how'd you do that? You know, like any immigrant to any country, uh, there's just some things you'll never know. I'm here 28 years and there's things I'll still never know and never understand, but that's okay. And uh, Israel is a super welcoming country uh, for immigrants. Um, it was difficult to break into. Almost everybody I ran into was a venture capitalist at the time was a pilot. I've been a pilot in the Air Force, a pilot. Uh, and, and if they weren't a pilot, they were in some other elite unit and I didn't have a network. So you just work harder, and you know. And I would go to every conference and every street corner, and just try to network with people, and find people, and, and try to be inquisitive and ask questions. And people uh, were respectful and uh, and thoughtful. And and some early entrepreneurs who, who couldn't get anyone to take an interest in the internet found kind of the only friend out there who was interested in the internet. You know, it's interesting. We we take a lot of trips to Israel. We take a lot of guys to Israel, and and there's there's so when we go to Israel, there's so much that excites people. People get excited, obviously, by the history of the land, the, the spirituality of the land, the IDF is something a lot of the people that we bring, uh, some of them have children the same age, you know, 17, 18, whatever, 19 year old kids who are just partying in college, and then they see these IDF soldiers, and they're sitting there and they're and they're risking their life. And that's inspiring. But interestingly enough, like, when they see the startup culture, that's also something that inspires people a lot. And uh, it's always a discussion that we have when we're there, like, what is it about Israel? Why are they so successful in that, like, you know, in the startup industry? What is it? Is it something about uh, the Israeli personality? Is it because they're soldiers? Like, you know, what what is it? And I'm curious to hear kind of your spin on that. And also, like, 
is that something that you saw as you were starting your investing? You're like, one second, you know, we're on to something over here. There's a certain culture over here that's going to be big in, 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 you know, the world of tech or in startup. Like, what, what is it about Israel? And, 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 and did you see it when you first started? I'll start, I'll start with a modern meta theme and then we'll work backwards. I think one of the big differentiators in Israel today as compared, for example, to Silicon Valley, or other places in the US. And there's only a small number of really innovative places in the world, although that's diffusing now. Uh, but Tel Aviv is one of them. And that is Israeli entrepreneurs are interested in principles and values as a driver of innovation and want to be in places uh, of principles and values that innovation drives change in. And so uh, the average Israeli entrepreneur or the unaverage Israeli entrepreneur is interested in, in impact, in the values, in the mission uh, ahead of time. And if you work this kind of backwards, what, what you understand is because of the military background, which most of the technologists and entrepreneurs come out of, there's a certain esprit de corps and a mission-driven culture to Israel, which I think is not superficial at all. It's fundamental to the change they're trying to drive in the world. These entrepreneurs see a problem, they want to fix it. There are easier ways to make money for smart and driven people than starting a startup. But the entrepreneurs that I see in Tel Aviv in particular, but in Israel in specific, are driven by values, ethics, principles to make a positive impact on the world. And I think that's different from a lot of other places that you find. And then, you know, there's obviously, you know, if you get military training, you get a few things. One is camaraderie of a team. It's a less selfish environment. It's a very... Uh, um, loyal environment. By the way, people stay at companies here much longer and they stay with the same team members longer. It's less mercenary in that way. And the other thing uh, I think is really important is, you know, Israelis are relentless. The whole country is a startup. And being an entrepreneur is about being relentless. They throw you out the proverbial door, come back in through the window. And if it doesn't work this way, so we'll tweak it a little that way. And, and Israelis are good at that innovation. What Israelis have been historically less good at is scaling up. Americans tend to be really good at that because it's a big country. And this was only a country of nine and a half million people. And so um, they've been less good at that. However, in the last four or five years, maybe, maybe six or seven, the thing that's changed is there's now a cadre of management talent that's kind of been through the wars in the U.S. Uh, and scaled up businesses and seen global scale have now come back to Israel or growing Israeli companies. So all of a sudden, the last six, seven years, you're starting to see startups of scale in Israel, reaching the billion, 10 billion, 20 billion dollar mark uh, and being global companies and global brands out of Israel. And when we started our firm, that's the shift we saw was that you could take these super mission driven entrepreneurs who put principles at the core of it. Maybe I'll get back to that in a little bit. Um, and you could scale these up to be giant businesses that would generate outsized return for our investors. And this was the first time in Israeli history you could build global brands and companies of scale out of Tel Aviv. Wow, I love that. It's interesting that you you bring that up. I, I, at least you know, being here in America, in Washington D.C., and and over here, the 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 young people that we encounter in Washington D.C. are very much mission and values uh, driven. Um, again, you know, the values may come from a different place. They are very much mission values driven. I I, I see it. This is my sense. I see it, I believe, more with, let's say, you know, millennials, the young millennial generation. I think that is a shift that's happening over here in the U.S. as well. Again, it's hard for me to speak about, you know, the 
previous generation because I don't know them in that in that way. Um, but I do see a lot of young people being very, very mission driven, very value driven. Um, but I think the other two things that you said, perhaps not as much, you know, there is definitely somewhat of a culture developing over here, you know, I guess, you know, the, the snowflake people like the term, they don't like the term, a lot of people are offended by the term. But there is a certain grit, I think that Israelis uh, that Israelis have. And um, and then also the idea of working with a team. That's a great point that you made. You know, the fact that they're in the military, they have a certain training of working with the team and not only being focused on themselves. I remember hearing some of these kids speak and you're talking about, you know, 20 year old girls who are managing, you know, man, they're because I guess at a certain point in time, you're in the army. Now you're already managing a team and they're doing that from a very young age. And it's that team spirit that they're getting in, in the IDF that they're now able to bring to the workforce. Think about this. Um, I'll say a couple of things. One is a kid goes through college. What he's trying to do between ages 18 to 22 is maximize his job prospects and his grades. At the same time, an Israeli kid is in the military or a national service, and they're responsible for other people. So that's a giant, impactful moment in a, in a young adult's life where their kind of uh, behavioral patterns are being formed. Um, you know, my kid was 21, and he was, you know, an officer commanding soldiers in the military. I got another one there now do doing that. And uh, my daughters were running uh, um, national, national service projects around that. And I, I think that matters on the team uh, piece. Um, on the previous point you made, I want to I distinguish between one thing and this agree with you very strongly. Um, the comment I made about the mission driven is not a generic comment, but an entrepreneurial comment uh, where you go to uh, meccas of innovation, Silicon Valley, uh, New York on some level, Tel Aviv. I think Tel Aviv distinguishes itself in this way by being more principle driven and impact driven uh, in doing its innovation than perhaps, let's just say, social networking in in, uh, in Silicon Valley. And I think that's really important. They're trying to solve hard problems. On your point about the millennials, I totally agree. Um, this is in fact, the, one of the uh, core principles of the, of the book that I have coming out, which is in the 21st century, when millennials come are coming of age and coming of purchasing power, they care a lot about the principles that stand behind business. What does your brand and what does your company stand for, but not just stand for, what is at the heart of your business model? And the core claim I make in the book is that um, in the 21st century, the best businesses and brands will be built on lasting principles rather than relativist principles, but they will be built on principles and values. They must be because everything is so transparent in this era of the internet that people see through things and people know if you're disingenuous and people know if you're just CYA. And what they want to see is that the core of the business model, the core of the technology, the core of your company values are aligned with real values, with real principles. And I think millennials are driving that and it's going to accelerate. Yeah, it, it, it's a powerful point. I, I wonder, though, as you're saying that, that, you know, on the one hand, it is you are much more transparent and therefore people will get behind you in a much stronger way. Um, if they agree with your values. Um, but I guess by the same token, when you are 
transparent about your values, uh, it also makes you somewhat polarizing, especially if you're jumping into, you know, a system of values. I mean, let, let's just say, and he, listen, we were all affected in the last couple of weeks, right? We have an ice cream company, right? Ben and Jerry's that made, and I, I believe, I don't know anything about their, you know, before two weeks ago, but apparently they've always been driven by principles. They've always gotten behind causes. Um, and, you know, two weeks ago, they made an announcement that they're, they're getting behind boycott, divestment, sanction. And, you know, and now they they lose a, a lot of, you know, they, they lost me. Not that I was eating that much Ben and Jerry's before I try to, you know, uh, watch my sugar. But, you know, every now and then, you know, <laughs> it would be there. So um, I, I, I don't know. Are there two sides of the coin there? I mean, does that now make a company somewhat more polarizing as well? So there, there's a few points there we need to unpack. So uh, first of all, one is I, I want to state the trend. The trend is inexorable. More companies will uh, talk about their principles and they'll put their principles at the source of the business model because that is what will build brands in the 21st century. That's number one. Number two, customers like these millennials are going to demand it of them. That's number two. So good or bad, I think it's going to happen. That's, I think, I think point one. Uh, point two, I think you're correct, uh, is that people can disagree about values. But one cannot deny, and this is important about Ben and Jerry's, um, that it can be dissected in the public eye. So let's look at Ben and Jerry uh, for a second. Uh, they declared values. But pretty quickly, people figured out it was pretty disingenuous. Uh, and really what they wanted to be was accepted by certain cultures. How can we tell that? Because they didn't dare pull out of China for the Uyghurs, um, either because the money is too good in China uh, or because that's not just a popular topic in a relativist values network. And part of what I drive at in the book um, is what my friend Balaji Nissan calls uh, ancient wisdom for the moderns uh, and is there are kind of relativist values that kind of check a political box and then there are timeless principles and i think ben and jerry's are in the relativist values box you know i picked on a small topic it cost them nothing dollar wise they checked the box and picked a bonton topic made no hard decisions you know like syria oh my god they killed six hundred thousand people <laughs> or the Uyghurs in China, or the lack of freedom in China. And instead, they kind of went for, you know, Bonton wokeism, you'll excuse me. But the Bible, and this is an important point, is something I, I push forward on in my book. The, the Bible has timeless values that sit at the core of business, and timeless principles that sit at the core of business, and you can create alignment. So I, I'll give you an example um, from a business I invested in. Um, which does a huge amount of good for the world. Uh, it's a company called Lemonade. And it's very important to unpack this for a second. Well, Lemonade's an insurance company where I was the first investor. It's the fastest growing insurance company in the world. And they unpacked something really important. And that is the core of every insurance company's business model is conflicted. How so? You buy insurance on your house there. Or I hope you don't have a leak. But if you have a leak and you file a claim with your insurance company, you might be surprised to find out that when the insurance company denies your claim, they make more money. Your loss is their profit. It's a fundamentally conflicted business model. And I'm sure they're nice people and they really want to help you. But at the end of the day, where the rubber meets the road, they make more money when you don't get your claim paid. And Cam Lemonade and say, hey, we can do better than this. Um, and they reinvented the business model of insurance. 
um, and put a digital substrate technology at the core of this by saying, we're just going to take money to manage the insurance pool, be a flat fee, percentage of premiums, but we make no more money by rejecting your claims. And that enabled them to be uh, on the side of the customer in a very fundamental way. And then they said, hey, wait a minute. One of the big costs in insurance is fraud. Insurance is considered a victimless crime. You don't know who your insurance company is. People, I'm not saying you personally, obviously, but people inflate their claims on insurance companies because they're tired of being screwed by them. And they said, well, what if um, we took leftover insurance premiums and gave them to your charity? So Rabbi Boxbaum likes, I'm making it up, uh, the Red Cross, which is a big charity that people give to eliminate. And you say, okay, leftover premiums in my pool, go to the Red Cross. Well, now if you inflate your claims or defraud the insurance company, you're not defrauding Lemonade, you're defrauding your charity of choice. Wow. And catch this, in four years, I've almost quintupled the amount of money we give to charity. I think it was four and a half million dollars of unclaimed premiums went to charity on Give Back Day, which is a few weeks ago. And it's changing the world and we're helping kids and helping hungry people. And that's the way business should be. And business should be aligned where the insurance companies align with the consumer and where together, if we do the right thing, we give charity about things that matter or we give back or we fix real problems. I can go on and give you more examples if you want, but I feel like I'm monopolizing time. No, no, no. I love that. I love that. That's very powerful. And in fact, I'm actually going to dig a little bit deeper because I'm, I'm very, very intrigued, you know, looking at, at, at your book, Tree of Life and Prosperity. And listen, in, in my work, our whole mission statement is about making Torah and making Jewish values and Jewish life relevant to people. And, you know, let's just say when we speak about marriage, okay, so, uh, you know, in, in, in my work, I will certainly offer or suggest to people, listen, you know, if I, I believe that my marriage is stronger because I am a, you know, I, I, I follow the Torah, I'm a Torah observant Jew, and for me, that has helped me in my marriage, that has helped me in my parenting, and it's helped me become a happier person, right? We want to be able to frame Torah. We want to be able to frame values that this is not just restricting us. No, actually, this is this is wisdom for living. And what you did with your book and what it sounds like has become really your mission is to spread this idea that in business and in your own prosperity, if you're living with these Torah values, then no, you'll actually be more prosperous. I, I don't think it's any anything new to say that the Torah tells us how to properly act during business, you know, in business. I think that that's something that obviously, you know, the Torah religion is going to do that. It's going to say, you know, don't steal, be honest, things like that. But to make a claim and say, no, actually, you'll be much more successful. Um, you'll 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 be happier. You'll have more. You'll you'll be more prosperous if you follow these guidelines. I think that that is such a such a powerful point. Um, you know, that being said, we know that there's a lot of dishonest people <laughs> who have made it big. So, you know, if you were to try to speak to that point and, and, and say, you know, can we, can we declare as Torah Jews that someone that follows this path will be more prosperous? Is that, is, is that a claim that we can comfortably make? I'm not making a metaphysical claim or a spiritual claim. I believe them, but I'm not making them. One, because I don't know the ways of God. I wouldn't dare to think I do, and et cetera. What, what I do think, though, is that the Torah is not a 
metaphysical book per se. What does that mean? If you read through all five books, you'll discover that material uh, uh, prosperity is a core focus. It's all over the place. It's actually there more than spiritual prosperity, if you read through very carefully. And the question is, why is this? And I, I think the reason why is this is because the Torah is a code for how you create a cohesive society, how you create a successful uh, business and capitalist environment, and how you create a successful interaction between individuals. So let's take a couple of examples in, in with society, a couple of quick examples. So um, in the book, I compare Noah to Alfred Nobel. So we all know about Alfred Nobel. He invented dynamite uh, in the great hopes that it would bore more tunnels to create better transportation and other great things for humanity. And he did. But it also got used for some pretty nefarious purposes. And he dies in melancholy and gives his fortune over to the Nobel Peace Prize and the Nobel Prizes for the furtherance because he was distraught by what had happened to, to humanity because of his uh, invention and, and the association of his name with dynamite, right? <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Dr. Well, Death Noah or something. Had, yeah. Yes. And Noah had the same problem. We, we don't pay attention to it, but Noah invented two things. One is he invented the mechanical plow. That's very obvious from the text, although the rabbis say it too. Um, and he increased the food supply dramatically. And then with the increase in food supply and the increase of wealth, society destroys itself and God brings the flood. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, actually, no, let's stay on that. So you have Alfred Nobel inventing dynamite, Noah inventing the plow, increasing prosperity, but also destruction at the same time. Now, why? Because they did not build an ethical framework around it at all. And what the Bible is telling us, the Torah is telling us around this is, if you have innovation without an ethical framework around it, society will destroy itself because it has a hard time figuring out what to do with these large impactful innovations. Any similarity to things going on in kind of social media mobs today is purely incidental, but um, we're meant to learn from this. And in fact, by the way, Noah understands this too, because he has a second invention, he invents chemistry, right? When he invents the making of wine, it's the first mention of wine. He takes the grapes, he plants the vineyard and he creates wine, but he doesn't share it. He gets drunk in his tent, just like Nobel dies in melancholy in Italy. And so- wow. Um, what you have is right at the beginning of the Torah, a live example of why alongside innovation and prosperity, we must build an ethical framework. And then right after that comes Abraham, who then builds the ethical framework. And he is the first human being in the whole Torah to have private property, to be wealthy individually. But he builds the ethical framework and the values framework around it. You know, the, the, the Torah tells us a very interesting story. It tells us exactly who Abraham takes with him in his travels from uh, Haran to Haran to the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. Who does he take? He takes his wife. He takes 70 people, but he also takes his nephew. But we know only one thing about his nephew, one biographical fact. You know what it is? What's He's that? an orphan. He's an orphan. His father dies. And the Bible tells us there, basically, the Torah tells us, you want to take care of the orphan, then you can become wealthy. Hmm. That's part of building a valuable society. And the inverse of that, of course, is what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that, the, the Torah is just telling us along with you, you want to build prosperous society? You want to become prosperous yourself? You can build wealth. It's important what you do with your wealth and the society you build 
must be built on timeless principles. And that's what I cover in the book. And, you know, and, that's, that's amazing. I, I want it's, it's a fascinating point because for some reason, maybe this is just part and parcel of the fabric of humanity, that for some reason, the innovation comes first. And then it really takes until we mess something up big time to add that ethical framework in. And, you know, again, you mentioned social media and, you know, I think that social media exploded, exploded. Um, and then suddenly mental health issues also started to soar. And all of the, you know, again, all of the uh, disasters that come out of social media, people comparing themselves, you know, obviously more addiction, um, perhaps, you know, greater, I mean, what a, the decline of morality of people over sexualization of, you know, women or what, whatever it is, you know, all, all of those things. And then suddenly, you know, when things are really bad, now suddenly we're like, okay, I think we need to do something about this. And, and again, I don't know what the future of social media is. I know, you know, Netflix put out that series, that, that, that uh, documentary, The Social Dilemma, uh, last year, which, you know, implied that there are people fighting for more, more of an ethical framework around, around social media. But um, I guess, I, I don't know, it seems to be sort of part of the fabric of humanity that we invent something, we go crazy with it, then we're like, uh oh, did we just destroy the world? And then we sort of try to clean up the mess by providing that ethical framework, you know, after that. I, th I think part of the reason for that, and I'm glad you framed the question that way, is people who are innovative and innovators, and the modern era think that they have wisdom that other people didn't have in the past. And I think one of the core elements of the Torah and of uh, our people, but not only, um, is we have a history. We have frameworks that have stood the test of time for thousands of years. If we only were willing to check them, again, I go back to what Balaji said, which is, Wisdom of the ancients for moderns. That's what he said about talking about my book. And if we stop for a second and say, just because we invented something new doesn't mean we need to reinvent values or principles, frameworks for this. We can go back and look, and we should, in anchors. I'm fond of saying that Facebook thinks it has the most users uh, on the planet of all time, but the truth is that the Bible has more users <laughs> in history than anybody else. It has, it has more active users in history than anybody because it's 3,000 years old and stood the test of time and millions of people around the world still read it for relevance but we got to just you know not discard ancient wisdom because we have a new innovation in fact the, what I'm trying to argue for in the book is the perfect marriage is modern innovation modern technology and ancient wisdom that will build a healthy 21st century ancient timeless values and 21st century technological innovation. And all we need to do is interpret those ancient timeless principles and values into the 21st century context. And that's what I attempt to do in the book. And I'll tell you one funny story, by the way. I, I have this, uh, partially because of, of the book writing, I have this thing that drives my children nuts. And I mentioned that Abraham, he comes to the land of uh, Israel and he brings with him his orphan nephew. And, uh, I was thinking about that because, you know, he thinks of the other and brings them with him and that goes to prosperity. So when, when these funny devices came out that had two-sided cameras and everyone started taking selfies, uh, I refuse. I, I don't take selfies <laughs> because the timeless principle that, that I was going to ask you for a selfie after this interview, but forget it. <laughs> yeah, the timeless, 
the timeless wisdom of Torah is it's not about self, it's about the other. Mm-hmm. So if it has the word self in it, I won't do it. So all these people laugh at me. I refuse to take selfies. Anyone can take a picture of us. I won't stop that, but we can't take a selfie. Um, I want to jump right back into uh, the first book of the Torah for a second. It's interesting. You, you, I, I think you hit on something, something uh, very powerful because we learn the book of Boratius, the book of Genesis, and we look for lessons. We look for a lot of lessons, but again, people are used to looking at the Bible as a book of spirituality. You know, a little bit of history, but you know, more, more spirituality. But it, it, if you look at the, especially the book of Genesis, so you see you have the curse of Adam and Eve. They, they get kicked out of Gan Eden. And it's a curse on the land. You know, the land will, you'll, you're going to have a hard time with sustenance. You're, the, the land is going to produce thorns and thistles, right? And that's, that's really the, the bulk of the curse, at least for Adam it is, not for Eve. Eve's okay, she's going to have some, you know, labor pains, things like that. But for him, the curse Let's is Let's not minimize much. the labor pains. We never, we didn't go through them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, the, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a funny video um, on the internet where, uh, where you have Adam and Eve and they're standing in front of God and God says, Eve, you know, because you, uh, because you didn't listen to me, I'm now cursing you and you're going to have to wear these. And God pulls up this thing of like high heels, you know, and he, <laughs> it gives it to her and she's like, you know, she's like, oh, like that looks terrible. And then God looks at Adam and he says, and you're going to have to wear this. And he gives him a necktie. You know, and he like he puts it on. And he's trying to figure out. It's like a noose for him, and he's like, "Oh, you know, this is not that bad." And then God is like, "No, no, no! You have to pull it up a little bit higher till you're Adam's apple." <laughs> um, but the bulk, anyhow, the bulk of his curse is is you know that he'll have to work the land. Then, then, like you said, Noah. The next scene, you have Noah, who, who's an inventor, and and he sort of solves the problem. He invents the plow. He teaches farming, and then we look at. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the truth is that really the Torah spent, Torah does not tell us a lot about their spirituality. We know that from the words of our sages, but it's focused on their business dealings. And then it all seems to be building up to the grand finale, which is the story of Joseph. And Joseph literally is the paradigm of this, you know, values driven, I don't know, could you call him an entrepreneur? I, I, I don't know. But you know, but you're touching on something powerful. You're really un- uncovering perhaps what is the thread of the entire first book of the Torah. I think it is actually um, the, the amount of times possessions and wealth is mentioned in in the first book of the Bible in Genesis is stunning. Um, for for those interested in like uh, biblical uh, technical terms. Uh, there's a term called the light water, which is a German term for the leading word. Um, and there's a notion in, in biblical studies that if a word appears seven times in a given uh, uh, section, that's the leading word, or the deterministic mm-hmm. word. The word rehush or possessions appears in the portion about Ab- uh, Abraham, Abraham seven times. I don't think that's an accident at all. And so uh, it's... It's fundamental to the whole thing. I, apropos the story of Adam and Eve, by the way, I'll, I'll point out an interesting phenomenon to you. Uh, I, read the, I read the story of Adam and Eve uh, a little differently. Um, I view it as a, as a parable around universal basic income. Like what happens if you give people money uh, to live and they don't have to work for their sustenance? So I'll tell you something really amazing. You want to hear something amazing? Do you know that there are no children in the Garden of Eden? 
in a place where God has provided all the sustenance, or the government has provided basic sustenance, universal basic income, there are no children. Mm. There are only children when man has to work. There are only children when man needs to earn his own living. There's only children where man struggles and sweats to go do that. That's where children are born. And I don't think that's an accident at all. Uh, I cover that in the, in the book in fairly uh, uh, detailed fashion. And so, uh, but I think it's just, it's, it's a giant blueprint. for Give, give us more of an interpretation of that. I'm, I'm, I don't know that I'm following why those two things are connected. Well, it's, it's factually true that there are no children in the Garden of Eden. Only well, once right. Adam was expelled from the Garden of Eden does he start to have children. But basically, in the Garden of Eden, um, where everything is provided, man is bored. And unlike things like, for example, that Mark Zuckerberg says that if we just give people money, they'll be creative. It turns out not to be true. He gets bored, and ultimately, he eats from the forbidden fruit. And he actually, by the way, his wife has nothing to talk to him about. She's talking to the serpent. You know, never once do they communicate in the Garden of Eden because they have no joint project and there's nothing to talk about and work on because everything is provided. So they're bored. And she talks to the serpent and that causes her to eat the forbidden fruit. And then they're expelled. By the way, Adam does some research. He goes out and chases the rivers and he comes back bored. If you look at the uh, descriptions of the rivers that he finds, by the time he gets to the fourth river, it's just kind of a river. There aren't even any discoveries there. And he's bored out of his mind because he doesn't have to work. And, and the Torah is telling us man needs to work to earn a living. Man needs to work to have a relationship with his wife. Man needs to work that because he has a relationship with his wife and he's working on a project for the future of humanity, he wants to have children and continue humanity. And that's a very important point right at the outset of the biblical narrative. I have to echo that because that's that's really powerful. It's the fact that man, as long as he does not have to work and he's not driven to work and he's not driven to innovate, his whole persona, he's just not a motivated human being. He's not motivated for anything. Correct. He's not motivated to love his wife more. He's not motivated to procreate. He's just not an interesting person. Right? Nope. He may be a very spiritual person, but he's not. Uh, but 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 he's not. He's not inspiring in that way to try to go. And then once he's cursed, which really it's a curse, but in a way it's also a blessing because now it gives him an opportunity to step into the realm of innovation, of having to of of having to to be somebody. And now suddenly, he wants a family. He wants to be a creator. I'm not even sure it's a spiritual existence. I think it's a failed experiment is the way I would describe it by, by God. And I think if you read the, the verses mm -hmm. carefully there, you can kind of see it unfold. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of track that in the book. I, I, I'm not sure. It's, it's just a bored uh, experience. He's, he's, he's unproductive and bored when not challenged. And by the way, I think there's like lessons for that in family as well. We're, we're, we need to challenge people. We need to challenge our kids. And we need to challenge ourselves to, uh, rise up. By the way, one of the things I think the, the, the army does a good job of here is challenge kids at age 18 to kind of, you know, step up. And I think that's, that's also important. And, but I, I think we need to challenge human beings. It's not, it's not a bad word. We shouldn't coddle them. We need to challenge them uh, to be productive. Yeah, I, I agree. Also, one of the things that my wife and I, when we teach about marriage, one of the things that we we're always encouraging couples to do is what we call it is what's your next big thing that always as a couple, you're always trying to work on, you know, again, like if you if you if 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 
if you're still growing your family, you know, think about, you know, do you want to have another child? Do you want to buy a new home? Do you want to move? Do you want to buy a vacation home? Something always be working on a project together as to what what's that next big thing. Um, how do you advise young people that are that are going in that are, that are about to enter into their workforce and they're sort of toying between, you know, do I get an old boring job or do I try to be creative? Do I try to be adventurous, you know, start my own company? How do you advise? First of all, general advice on a podcast is really dangerous um, because uh, and no, I said in all seriousness, because without looking at a human being and try to understand their soul, it's actually really hard to give advice. And I think it's funny. Really, there's actually a point on every single podcast where I get that answer. <laughs> you must be talking to smart people uh, before me. So I'm, I'm glad to be in that company. So it's it's um, it's a hard thing. But in, in general, uh there's no substitute for hard work. The beginning of your career should be about super hard work and networking. Um, your network matters far more than what you do and don't know. Oh, I think networks matter a ton. Um, the, there's this notion to kind of pursue your passion, uh, which I have a lot of sympathy for. A lot of people don't know what their passion is. And so I think it's really important for people to try things out uh, to find their passion even earlier. Uh, I started working at like age 13, 14. Uh, my passion uh, wasn't doing retail. I discovered uh, cutting cheese and, and fish. And you think. First <laughs> I did it for five years. So, it, you know, paid some bills, but uh, that wasn't my passion. But my passion, I turned out, was interacting with people. I love when people came into the store. Um, and I like talking to people. And I, till today, I, I read a fair amount, but I still learn a lot more talking to people than otherwise. I like people. That's one of the things I discovered. Um, and, uh, so you got to kind of test a bunch of things to figure out, uh, what you like. Um, and I think the, the next thing, I hope this is not politically incorrect. I, I give a lot of lectures to, uh, high school kids and to kids in, you know, in college. And I tell them all the same thing, get married young. And the reason I say get married young is life is better shared and it's better to grow up together with your spouse than I think to meet later when you're when you're more developed individually. And I think that's also for your career, that, that's an important discovery moment. Someone can tell you one, that you're not so great like you think you are if you're being successful at work. And, and, and two, someone who can challenge you uh, along the way and who can share your, your innermost secrets and, and fears with. I said before, you know, when I got started in business, I didn't know anything about venture capital or what I was doing. I, I didn't know anything. Uh, I still don't know anything about technology. Um, you know, and being able to kind of bear my soul to to my wife at the time, I think was was super helpful. And I think I think it's important to go through life with a, with a soulmate from as early as possible a date. But this we're talking now to you know a young person who's about to enter into their career, and and you're you're, you're advising them to you know trial and error, try things out, uh, but also get married young. But I mean, a lot of these kids are also spending a lot of money and investing a large chunk of their life, their resources, and not, not a large chunk of their life in the big scheme, but sort of those those important years where they're getting a degree, they're spending a lot of money on getting a degree. And um, many young people sort of lock themselves into a lifestyle before they've had a chance to experiment like that. So how do you see those two things going together? You're getting married, which is in a way you're settling down, you're locking yourself into somewhat of a lifestyle. You're getting your degree, which is further adding to a lifestyle that you're locking yourself into. And really, I think I think people don't really know themselves 
you know, well until they're in their mid to late 20s, you know, but at that point, so many of of our young people have already locked themselves into a lifestyle which may or may not be what's right for them. Um, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. So uh, I think it's okay not to know yourself when you get married. That's part of growing up together and then you grow up as a unit. I think that's okay. I think your point about what you call locked into a lifestyle is an interesting one. There's there's a couple of points there. One is people taking on large amounts of debt to go to various universities and feel like they need to get a job to support that. I, I do wonder out loud whether all these people actually need to go to these expensive universities going forward. Um, my son, you know, he did the army for four and a half years, but he's not going to university. He doesn't have a high school matriculation. He's reasonably intelligent, uh, I think. Um, but he he'll be fine in a startup and innovation world without without that degree. Now, I'm not counseling people not to go to college because people need to get educated. But I don't know that you need to spend a quarter of a million dollars to get yourself educated and then be stuck. There are other things to life uh, than that. And uh, so that's kind of point one. Point two is um, in a hierarchy of values, we can sacrifice things, right? So I can live in a less good apartment in a less good neighborhood to pay down student debt if I want to be married. Um, we can uh, cramp. You know, my, my wife and I live with three children and uh, 600 square feet uh, for a bunch. It was what we could afford at the time, but you know that was the value. It may not be for everybody, but I think I tell my kids a lot that you can only have one thing at the top of your priority list at any given time. And I really mm -hmm. believe that. And so deciding kind of what's good for the long term rather than the short term, I think is core, uh, uh, both in business, by the way, and, and in life to being successful in that regard. You got to make long-term decisions early on. And they're hard. Sometimes they're hard. Mm. Um, but I think they're more meaningful. And this is what I always come back to about kind of, um, you know, the biblical thing. We make uh, this story I tell in the book about a rabbi of mine, Rabbi Lichtenstein, who I was like an 18-year-old kid. And I'm older than you are and all your listeners. But there, was, there were like cassette tapes when I was a kid. Uh, <sighs> some people may know what they are. Who are listening. I do remember those days. Okay, so... <laughs> I had one of these double cassette recorders where you could record from something you purchased onto a blank tape, blank cassette, and, and copy it. And early in my time in, in yeshiva, I went to go ask Rabbi Lichtenstein whether I could do this. And he looked at me and said, hey, um, he didn't say, hey, never use the word, hey. He said, <laughs> um, you bought it, you own it, uh, you can make a copy, but you're not going to get a medal for being holy. Right. And this is kind of the point you made. There's a lot of scoundrels who make money and get away with things for a while. Bernie Madoff, for example. But sometimes we make uh, decisions that maybe aren't good in the short term, like, okay, I won't be able to listen to that music or I can't get it cheaply. But over the long term, both for our souls, our value system, and even for the trust we build with other people that then redounds into business, pay off handsomely over the long term. And I think we need to uh, encourage people to optimize more for the long term than for the short term. And there's a lot of short-term thinking in modern society. We get mm -hmm. dopamine hits from short-term thinking, but you no know, one likes, but it doesn't help for the long-term. I love that. In the last couple of minutes together, Michael, if it's okay, I'd like to get a little bit, if I can ask you a couple of personal questions, if that's okay, because I think that there's a lot that I and all the listeners could, um, could learn just from you and from your life. Uh, you mentioned something in your last answer. You, you, you spoke about priority, and you said you can only have one priority at a time. 
This is coming from someone who is an extremely successful investor. Uh, you have a family with eight children. Um, you are a Torah observant Jew. You're living in Israel um, and you're writing books. You've, you've written several books. Um, and from what I understand, can you know, even from anyone who's writing books, yeah, you you uh, you got to learn a lot of Torah to be writing Torah books. So you obviously have a lot going on in your life. Uh, how do you prioritize? Not well. <laughs> um, the uh, I get up early. I'm a morning person. I'm I'm not very compassmentous at night. Um, I get up early. Uh, I go to shul in the morning first thing, as early as I can, um, and then I sit and learn and write. I, I used to sit and learn, and now now I write, uh, which I guess is part learning still. Um, but that's my my hardcore writing time. Um, and uh, you know, then I go to work, spend time with the kids, and uh, you know, I have a I have an unbelievably uh, capable wife. And, uh, you know, like I said earlier, uh, I like to say that moving to Israel is the second best decision I made in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, the first mm -hmm. one was marrying my wife. And um, it's, you know, everything's a partnership in that regard. And, uh, you know, I'm, I feel blessed by my parents in that regard. And it's, it's uh, and I, the one thing I will say is I'm relentless about optimizing my time. Um, and I try to be the most, like, if I'm on vacation, I'm like on vacation. Um, but if I'm working, I'm working. Um, and, uh, it can drive people a little crazy, uh, but I'm, I'm a relentless optimizer of time. I, I had a rabbi in the ninth grade and he and I were not on the same wavelength to say the least. Um, and in one year of studying from him, I took one thing away, but it was really meaningful. He said, there's no better expression in the English language than killing time. Mm. Cause once it's passed, it's dead forever. That's what mm. he said. Mm. Right. And he right. said, and I, I think that's, that's important. I'm relentless about optimizing time. Do you have any uh, recommendations or hacks for how you might optimize time? Maybe something that you've come up with that people don't know about? So a few things. One is uh, context switching is taxing on most people. Meaning if I'm doing this and I do this and do that, the amount of time you waste switching things you do is very, very significant. So I sit down to do something and try to finish it. Um, so I don't have to context switch uh, in the middle. That's uh, an important thing. Two is turn off notifications on your telephone. Uh, I don't have notifications on my phone. It drives people crazy. Send you WhatsApps, you don't respond, et cetera. Sorry. Um, I, I also, I was off uh, almost all social media for a while. I had to get back on because of my book um, and promoting the book. Um, but I think, you know, it's okay to be on social media. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but don't be on all of them. Uh, don't be on tiktok and instagram and facebook and twitter i mean you go crazy you really um, do <laughs> and then, but i think i think the important thing about that is not just the platforms the big question is do you let other people manage your time or do you manage your own time i think most of us are responsive it drives me nuts you sit with people like i got a whatsapp i gotta respond i got a message i gotta respond no you don't you know you're like a slave to it the, the key definition of a slave is someone who doesn't control their own time so uh, that's why, by the way, the first commandment to the Jewish people when they leave Egypt is to set the new moon, to set the month, to set mm. the calendar, because you're the master of time. And so, um, but if you're responding to notifications, you're a slave. And so turn off notifications on your telephone. That'd be another one. And, mm. uh, and then the last thing is, 
have great partners in life. So I have great partners in my, in my business, um, partner Ed and Aaron and Tomer. Um, great partner, as I mentioned, in my wife. And, and just you want to have partners in life. Being a soloist is boring and uh, not productive. Last question. Who are some of the people that you go for your inspiration or that you or in building your career and your life? Who are some of the people that were your major inspirations who really do what you do and you were able to sort of model your game after theirs? Um, different walks of life, different people. I mentioned Rabbi Amital who talked about the 10,000 jobs. Um, I think would tell me to go for 100,000 today. <laughs> and Rabbi Lichtenstein, who was the was just a paragon of ethics and morals. I never met a more ethical human being in my whole life. Um, and my parents, um, my mom's very entrepreneurial. My dad was a lawyer uh, for many years, and my dad is a rabbi as well. Oh, wow. um, we still have a, we still have a weekly chavruta, uh, weekly study of Torah every Sunday morning. That's morning again, yeah. and um, and uh, and then you know people have been super kind to me through through my career. Um, Bruce Dunleavy uh, was my partner at Benchmarks, the biggest mention in this business. And I think he's just an unending optimist about the world and what technology innovation can do. And my partner, Bill Gurley at Benchmark, uh, who, who was just unbelievably rigorous and Alex Balkansky, who, who helped bring me in there and my partners now. And I just, um, all these people have influenced me. I, I, I learned from people, you know, the, 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 the Mishnah says, I've learned from all the people who teach me. And that's, that's really the truth. And uh, I've been fortunate to study Torah with lots of people and to, to learn in business from lots of people. And I just, I try to pick up a little bit from, from, from each person along the way. And like I said, from my parents who've been with me the wow. longest, you know, always since I'm born. Mm. Right. Michael, you are a, a fascinating, fascinating human being and very, very inspiring. And I'm really inspired and I'm excited for the for, for your book to to hit the world. So where will people be able to get your book when it comes out? Um, you can certainly get it on Amazon. You can pre-order it on Amazon already. It's called The Tree of Life and Prosperity, uh, published by uh, Simon & Schuster under the Wicked Sun imprint. Um, and you can get it on the Barnes & Noble site and... Uh, as I say, if anyone wants to buy a Rosh Hashanah present for friends, you can also order in bulk yeah. uh, from BookPal. And uh, uh, I'm super excited. It's gotten one thing I'll tell you that, that that's that's made me um, proud and, and, and humbled at the same time. The reviews that have come in from people of all walks of life um, and the blurbs, you can find them on the Amazon site are are just touching. And, uh, you know, Professor Paul Gompers, uh, MBA professor at Harvard, who said that this should become a part of every business ethics course at business schools and uh, Lori Siegel's a 60 minutes correspondent, you know, anyone with a brain and a heart wants to do business should do this. And, you know, Rabbi Mark Penner at Yeshiva University, I just, um, it's, it's been touching. And, uh, and I, I really hope people take it. And the, the reason you write a book, by the way, is not to write. The reason you write a book is to get feedback. And, <laughs> and, and, and really my hope and prayer is, is that your listeners, you know, read the book, uh, discuss it and argue with me about it, get feedback, you know, and we can open a discussion on this topic because to the point you made earlier, you get a lot of innovation in the world and we got a lot of kind of relativist values in the world and this opportunity to kind of anchor it and, and you know, use the wisdom of the ancients for moderns, I think is, is, is super important. And uh, I hope we get a chance to have another discussion on it and get some feedback from your listeners. Yes, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for spending this time with me and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. I really, really appreciate it and much success in the new book. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.